And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing pretty good. Uh, what about yourself? I am doing well also. <laughs> so before we, we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let listeners know about a cool, weird show I just found on Netflix. Oh no, okay. Called Dark Tourist. Um, It's this guy named David something from New Zealand. David David from New Zealand. He's Um, the only one. And so he's a journalist and he's investigating what he calls dark tourism, where tourists will go to like dangerous places. Um, purposefully um, for the thrill of it, like war zones, natural disaster places. Or like places where bad stuff has happened. Yeah, bad stuff has happened, and um, places that are kind of weird and macabre. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of see how this was a little bit up my alley. And it got me thinking about, so it's like a documentary kind of style. He does interviews with these people and the cameras follow him, so it's kind of like a reality type deal. It's a travel show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it got me thinking about cringe horror, because um, there's, like, cringe comedy, like The Office, where you're just like, oh, God, why are they, Mm -hmm. why is he acting this way, or I can't handle this. Um, And there's moments of Dark Tourist where, like, it's very fascinating, because he'll, like, prod people to kind of keep them talking and question what's going on. And there's also points where he is self-reflexive about, like, what kind of fucked up situation he's put himself in. But it feels a bit like cringe horror because you can't really look away and you're kind of like, why are you doing this? Please don't do this. And yeah, I wanted to just bring up this like genre that I only, that me just discovered. (laughs) That I just discovered. Maybe it's been a genre for a while because it's a little bit similar to that feeling of like, don't go in that room, the killer's in there. But it's not fictional. Yeah, watching it gives me anxiety. Yeah. Thinking about watching it gives me anxiety. Yeah, that's fair. You haven't watched it yet. I've seen, like, clips as... Like, I've seen bits and pieces as you've had it on. But I haven't, like, sat down to watch it. It's not... I don't think I would enjoy it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, But I just wanted to let our listeners know about this find. If you want to watch it, it's just on at least Canadian Netflix. It's called Dark Tourist. Um, I'd say that, like, the first episode's a little, like, okay, fascinating. The second one is where it hooked me, and then the third one's really fucking bad. Uh, but then it, 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 it goes. Speaking of my anxiety, I thought I'd give listeners sort of a mental health update. There needs yeah. to be, like, there should be, like, a, a musical sting. We need to have, like, a, for the segment, the mental health segment. Introduce the segment. Mental health update. There you go. Um, so a few weeks ago, on a previous episode, I talked a bit about uh, my own sort of struggles with mental health, um, specifically depression and anxiety, and how I had started to seek out help for these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I 
first talked to my doctor last December, started seeing a psychiatrist, got, uh, started taking medication in February, uh, then started seeing a therapist in May, start of May, uh, doing something called CBT, uh, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Hmm. And the update I wanted to give is that now it's coming to the end of summer and I am basically done my CBT. Um, I have one more session for September and that session's really just to make sure that like I haven't like backslided on sort of the practice. Mm -hmm. But as long as I sort of keep up the medication and keep up the practice that I learned during the course of the therapy, I'm good. And I don't say this to brag. I'm not bringing this up to be like, ha ha, I finished therapy. Meh. I mean, it is a an achievement that right. you should be proud of. Sure, but I'm not bringing it up to, to brag on people because, like, some people are in therapy for a very long time. Um, you know, everyone's different. Everyone's situation is different. The reason why I did want to bring it up, though, is if you're having these kinds of issues and you haven't sought out any kind of assistance for them because, like me, for the first, you know, 27 years of my life, you just thought that you could just tough it out. I bring this up so that you know that there's an end point. That, like, if you if you start in with seeing doctors or doing medication or, or taking therapy, you know, seeing a therapist, um, it's not like some new albatross that you're adding to your troubles, like, on top of the depression or whatever else. It really is a path to getting better that there is like a light at the end of the tunnel. There is like an end point. You can be better. It's not some sort of eternal time and money suck that you're just going into that is like a Sisyphean thing. Mm -hmm. Now, like granted, now that I'm through my course of therapy, like I do have to keep up the maintenance work. But that's sort of like, you know, if I were to use an analogy, it's like if I had never brushed my teeth ever in my life. And, you know, so it really screwed up my teeth. And so I went in to a dentist and they spent a good amount of time, like, cleaning out my mouth and then, like, taking out all the cavities or filling in all the cavities, I should say, <laughs> and, you know, dealing with all my mouth crap. Well, then I would leave after that whole process with, like, a clean mouth. But if I don't start brushing my teeth, it's just going to go back to being terrible, mm -hmm. right? So, so I've, I've, you know, I've had my cavities filled. I've had my cleaning done. I've had the, the fillings and, the, and the, the crowns and whatever put the in. The polishing, the yeah, whitening. By my mind dentist. And now I just have to keep up with, like, brushing my brain with my mind toothbrush? Um, flossing is probably really hard because brains have all those, like, little, like, noodles. <laughs> okay, the anyway. The on the outside. Yeah, I get what like you're saying. No, I know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> okay, well, uh, so that's all I wanted to say was just yeah. to, to give a few words of encouragement to anyone out there if you've thought about, you know, seeking out, um help but maybe didn't because you were worried that it wouldn't do anything for you. So, what are we watching this week? Um, we are watching The Man with Nine Lives from 1940. Okay, 
Awesome. Cats. What? Cats. What about cats? Nine lives. Sure, but it's, it's the man with nine lives. Men can be cats. I think by, like, the strict <laughs> definition of both of those things, no, actually. <laughs> okay, so tell me how Boris Karloff becomes a cat. I, I really do not want to be setting you up for disappointment, Sarah. He does not become a cat. There are so no, it's not a were-cat. There are no cats in this movie. No. I don't want you going into this movie thinking it has something to do with cats, because I know you love cats. Yeah. And there's no cats here. It's going on the bottom of the list. Okay. Okay, tell me about it. All right. So The Man with Nine Lives continues Boris Karloff's string of films with Columbia Pictures, along very similar lines to his previous film with that studio, The Man They Could Not Hang, which was very similar to an earlier British film he had done called The Man Who Changed His Mind. Mm -hmm. They're not just similar because the titles all sound the same, too. <laughs> uh, Plot-wise, they're very similar. The Man with Nine Lives was Karloff's very next film, immediately following Black Friday. Okay. Like The Man They Could Not Hang, The Man with Nine Lives was produced by Wallace McDonald for Columbia Pictures. It was directed by Nick Grinda, and it was shot by Benjamin Klein. The only significant differences behind the camera were the addition of editor Al Clark, who was an Academy Award nominee for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939. Okay. And would become an Academy Award nominee again ten years later for All the President's Men. As well, the film was penned by a different writer, uh, the prolific B-movie writer Harold Shoemate. Joining Karloff in the cast would be Roger Pryor, who had been the district attorney in The Man They Could Not Hang, and now plays sort of the good doctor to Karloff's mad scientist in The Man With Nine Lives. The romantic lead is 22-year-old Joanne Sayers. She'd been acting in Hollywood since 1938, uh, but this would be her final film role. She was cast in the title role of the Broadway show My Sister Eileen, which she performed from 1940 to 1942, and then retired when she married a New York lawyer. So, similar people, both behind and in front of the camera. Similar premise as well, with Karloff as a mad scientist who's playing around with the forces of life and death. Similar title. Mm -hmm. The Man with Nine Lives was released on April 18th, 1940, and while it was just another Columbia B picture, it must have done well enough because much the same group of people would be back not five months later for their third take on the same theme with Before I Hang. At least it's like a little bit of a different title. Then. Yeah, it's not the man with blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. So how are we watching this? So The Man With Nine Lives is available to stream on Google Play and YouTube and is on DVD as part of the Boris Karloff collection for Mill Creek Entertainment. Okay, so that's how we're watching it. Yes, and it's on our YouTube playlist. If you would like to check out that playlist, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back after watching The Man With Nine Lives. See you on the other side, everybody.
welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Man with Nine Lives, directed by Nick Grinder from 1940. Ben, there's no cats in this movie. No, I, I mean, I told you that before we start watching. But the title. Yeah, it's just about because he brings people back from the dead. I don't think that's what the title's referring to. Yeah, I mean... He has nine lives in his hands. No, because there's... See, okay, this bothered me. Okay. There's him. That's yeah. one. There's uh, Dr. Mason and Nurse Judy. That's yeah. two more, so we're at three. Yeah. There's um, the patient that he initially had. And Bob Adams? Jasper Adams. And Bob Adams' nephew... Or Jasper Adams' nephew is Bob Adams. The Adams boys. Who the fuck is Pete Daggett, then? The sheriff? No. Stanton. Because Hawthorne's the judge. Yeah. Okay, well, anyway, so there's him, the nurse, the doctor, the two Adams, the sheriff, the judge, and the coroner. That makes for a total of eight. Did you count himself? Yes. Who's the ninth? I counted. I counted during the movie. Okay, so we got Boris Karloff. That's right. We got Tim... And Judith. Mm-hmm. We got Stanton, mm-hmm. Bassett, mm-hmm. Hawthorne, mm-hmm. and the two Adams. Mm-hmm. That's eight. No, I counted during the movie. Who are we forgetting? We're not forgetting anyone. That's everybody. And it bothered me the whole movie because clearly no. the title should be a reference to, yeah, the idea that he has he's toying with these nine lives. But I guess it's just supposed to be a goofy way of saying that he's bringing people back from the dead. I... Yep. Okay. Yeah, I had... No, trust me, I had the same thought. Okay. It bothers me. We're getting ahead of ourselves, though. Maybe if we go through the plot of the movie again, it'll make sense once more. Okay. Um, I mean, I know that my math skills aren't the best, but I could have sworn there was nine. Like, I counted during... Okay. <laughs> Dr. Tim Mason and his fiance. Nurse Judith are working with freeze therapy um, as a possible cancer cure, uh, where the idea is we'll freeze the person locally in a particular place, that freezing will cause the cancer to die off, and then we'll bring the person back, like unfreeze them, Mm -hmm. and they'll be cancer-free. Yes. Now, they can only freeze, and they demonstrate this, they can only freeze someone for up to five days, which isn't long enough to actually kill the cancer. And they can only get them down to, like, 88 degrees Fahrenheit, which, like, isn't, like, super, super cold. Yeah, yeah. So it's not super effective, but, you know, he's working on these theories. We see him showing and demonstrating this theory and hypothesis to a crowd when the film opens, but the hospital kind of reprimands him and says, you know, we want to test these methods before you go out publicizing them because the scientific method and all that. So you and Judy go take a vacation while we confirm your theories. I thought that this part of the movie was especially realistic because the problem is that, like, the press are reporting that, like, his promising experimental therapy is a surefire, already proven and available cure for cancer, which is totally what newspapers still do. Um, so Tim and Judith decide to head to Silver Lake near the Canadian border, 
And they choose this location because a Dr. Leon Creval had been publishing work that Tim's based his own work off of. This is where Creval lived, um, but he's been missing for ten years. No one really knows where he's gone. They go to this <laughs> broken-down mansion, and they discover Creval, along with four others, frozen in a secret basement lab. Yeah, like, sub-sub-sub-basement. It's like they go from, like, the haunted spooky house to, like, a cellar, and then, like, down some stairs and down, like, a tunnel and into basically, like, a subterranean mine shaft. <laughs> they awaken Creval, which, by the way, okay, the way that they awaken people is they warm them up with blankets and then force-feed them coffee. <laughs> They have a feeding tube and a funnel and, like, it's Hot like... coffee. It's like first week at university fresh, only instead of beer, it's coffee. <laughs> um, so that's how they wake him up. He explains that at the time when he was frozen, he had been treating a patient of his named Jasper Adams. And that the four people frozen along with him are Sheriff Stanton, Dr. Henry Bassett... District Attorney John Hawthorne, and his patient's nephew, Bob Adams. I think. I think. It might also be Pete Daggett. I remember someone saying the name Pete Daggett out loud, because I remember thinking that's a ridiculous name for someone to have. But I also know that Creval was constantly saying the name Jasper Adams, so I know that's the name of the patient. Yeah. And, I, and then the other guy was his nephew, so I would assume that's Bob Adams. Yeah. Well, in any case... um. If you're going to look it up on Wikipedia, there's, like, no info about who is who. Okay. Like, I tried. Okay. Um, anyways, these four people were like, hey, this guy's uncle has been missing for, like, a long time. We think you're extorting him for money with this fake cancer cure. And they go to his laboratory to stop him. Pete Daggett was the old man who's like, don't go over to the house! Oh. Okay. I'm glad that we cleared that up. Um, so then we go into a flashback where we see these four men confronting Creval. They go to this underground lair, and um, Creval shows them Jasper Adams in this ice box um, and says, "Like, don't. I know he looks dead. He's really just frozen. Trust me." And they're like, mm, "Pretty sure he's dead. You're arrested. Yeah, you're under arrest." Mm -hmm. And they, like, wheel the body out of the ice box. And um, in order to kind of threaten everyone to be like, no, really, let me just at least wake him up properly, Creval mixes three different poisonous ingredients together, happens to write down the formula, and um, says that, you know, this is going to kill us, let me wake him up or I'll drop it. Um, Bob attacks him, he drops it, and coughing, they all run into the icebox, and then they all faint, and so they're all frozen. Now, they've been frozen for ten years, I should say. So, that patient that was just left out to dethaw, uh, Jesper Adams is dead. Yes. He's a pile of bones. Creval thinks that, you know, being frozen for ten years is kind of worth it, because it's all thanks to this, like, happenstance of a mixture of 
poisonous substances. Yeah, because being frozen for ten years should kill you. Yeah. And even, like, Mason hasn't figured out how to do this cryogenic freezing thing this good. So he figures it must have been the poisonous gas they inhaled that actually made it so that they could survive. Yeah, so he's like, I got the formula, everything's fine, this is great. So after discussing the fact that they've been frozen for ten years, um, they realize that after you've been missing for seven years, you're considered legally dead. And this enrages Bob, um, because he was expecting a hefty inheritance from his uncle. So in anger, he takes the formula, the piece of paper with the formula, rips it up and throws it into the fire, um, which enrages Creval, who shoots him. Yeah, it happens all very quickly. Yes. So now... Creval's like, we have to figure out this mixture, and we'll use these human guinea pigs, namely the three other men who were frozen. So Tim and Judith kind of go along, because Tim's like, you know, I can see he has good intentions, this is for the greater good. Judith just kind of goes along because she's with Tim. She doesn't have a ton of agency. No. Um, I get the feeling, though, that it's also kind of like, you know, I have the medical knowledge, maybe I can help this go smoothly. Kerval also has a gun and is definitely forcing everybody to do everything. That is, that is very fair. Um, they are cooperating under duress. Um, so they go along, but Judith, especially um, throughout the film, kind of cracks under the pressure of being an accomplice. Mm-hmm. There's a couple times where she breaks down, um, having taken part in basically murder. So we see Dr. Bassett and then D.A. Hawthorne die in the experiments. The sheriff is shot off-screen, and we've explained that thanks to updates to the code, you can't have him die Mm on-screen. And in the process of this, Creval realizes that he needs to test these mixtures on someone who was not previously frozen. Yeah, the, the issue wasn't how he was mixing the poisons, but rather that the new mixture was reacting with the old mixture these previously frozen people had already gotten, and that was what was killing them. So he knocks Tim out to use him, but Judith kind of says, use me instead to protect Tim. During the experiment, Mounties come to the rescue because they're (laughs) near the Canadian border. They rescue Tim, who was tied up, and they break into the icebox and shoot Creval, just as he's, you know, finally demonstrating that Judith, although frozen, is in fact alive at 30 degrees Fahrenheit, she can be brought back to life. He's proven that, you know, this formula works and my theories are correct. I thought he said she was 80 degrees below zero. In any case... It's cold. Yeah, it's cold. You know, they've succeeded in this experiment. Um, and he passes his research... And he passes his research to Tim to kind of continue working on these theories. Then we cut to Tim and Judith at this kind of medical hearing where the director who previously was like we need to test these theories before saying that it works um says hey uh Creval did these things but we have this book now and then Tim stands up and gives a speech about how despite Creval going beyond the limits of law he was a great man of science and we look forward to using this research. Something along those lines. Yeah, unethical human experimentation is completely valid so long as it gets usable results. Yeah, the ends justify the means. Mm-hmm. The end. What? Did you enjoy this movie, Sarah? I did. Yeah, I I did, 
as well. Why do you say it like that? You know, here's the thing. This movie was really weirdly paced, in my opinion. Okay. Like, from a modern standpoint, I guess, the structure just felt weird. It feels like it gets a really... It takes a really long time for us to get where we're going, and then we don't stick around long enough once we're there to really have anything be effective. The tension that you'd expect from this very claustrophobic setting that we're in isn't really there. So it never quite felt as effective as it could be for me. It just, I'm not saying it was bad. Like, I think this was a fine movie, but it also didn't do anything particularly special. It was just kind of like one standard length of movie, you know, cut off at the butcher's. <laughs> like, just give me a standard length of movie, please. Like, um, I mean, I, I, I agree and disagree with you. I would agree that this film doesn't hold the tension as well as it could. Um, I think there are ways that it could definitely be stronger. I think the way that it really holds the tension is thanks to Judith, hmm. kind of freaking out about being an accomplice to all this. Um, and I think the way that the film doing that central part of, like, <laughs> we're trapped in this basement with this madman. Um, I think the way that it's shot does very well at holding part of the tension, but I, I think the real power of that goes to Judith. Um, I disagree that it's not doing anything special. I think I, I would agree that cinematography is quite good. Yeah. Um, I just found that the directing and the editing, surprisingly enough, to be very listless and flat. I thought Karloff was very good as Creval, which, you know, he should be. He's basically played this part four times now. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought that a lot of the rest of the cast had the on-screen presence of wet cardboard. I mean, there's so many. <laughs> there's, like, eight slash nine on the screen there. <laughs> um, but I did think the story was interesting, mm -hmm. and I think it raises some intelligent questions about medical ethics, even if it's not maybe doing it on purpose. Um, I just It just never quite gripped me as much as I thought it could. See, that's the part I agree with. It didn't grip me as much as I thought it could. Um, to kind of just repeat and parrot your own words back to you, um, the reason why... I think this is doing something different and interesting, is there are several times where you're like, I can see where Creval's coming from. Mm -hmm. And we have our main characters be like, I can see where Creval's coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's just a couple points where Creval just kind of like toes over the line. Yeah. And you're like, oh fuck. Yeah, I thought that when Karloff was allowed to sort of dig into the more menacing side of Kraval, those were the moments when the story really engaged me more. Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't go all the way, and I think that's also why I find this very interesting, because it's a mad scientist that is absolved of his madness at the end. Yeah, I mean, perhaps the movie's runtime is partially to blame here, because we're never doing one thing very long before we're on to the next part of the story. Yeah. I just kind of felt that even though, you know, things are changing very quickly in the movie, it still felt a little sluggish because the whole movie is just set in the basement, in the, that very small set of rooms, or at least a, the large portion of it is. And it should have felt more tense or cramped. Um, but to me, watching it, it often just felt cheap. Um, and sort of like biding for time, 
um, watching a whole lot of nothing happen instead of really taking advantage of the tension. And, you know, the moments for me like this were, you know, seeing the entire process of Judith making soup or tea or something. And it just, I could see how you could use that for tension in the script. For me, it was the directing, like Nick Grinda falling short because he just didn't have what it took to make the most of the setup. Mm. Like if you think of what like a Hitchcock could have done with this setup, you can imagine how much more tense and on edge you would have been watching this movie. And I don't think it, it manages it. Yeah. Like if you want to compare that part of this film with all of rope. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, so I see what you're saying. But I do agree that Creval is a much better and more interesting character than, say, Savard from The Man They Could Not Hang. I mean, for one thing, Creval feels a lot more believable as this kind of dedicated scientist driven to extreme methods because he's just sort of using the tools at his disposal in his basement. He doesn't have, like, a mansion full of death traps, for yeah. instance. Yeah. I think it was interesting to see this film after Dr. Cyclops. Okay, yeah, for sure. Because Dr. Cyclops also uses human people for experiments. And, I mean, we, we, we explain it in the Dr. Cyclops episode, but it's not a horror movie. Um, but this is kind of a, an interesting, like, foil. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that we're watching it directly after. Yeah, it's a similar sort of idea of being trapped with this mad scientist who's going to use you for his experiments. I think this approached horror much more than Dr. Cyclops did. Oh, 100%. I also thought it was interesting how, in previous episodes, you know, we talk about how we see a bit too much on screen. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not spooky enough. And this film has quite a bit off screen. Yeah. Kind of the key example is when we're with... Tim and Judith locked in a separate room and we hear a gunshot go off and every so often we kind of cut back to very tight close-ups of Karloff doing something and we don't quite know what's happened and stuff. Um, kind of to that point, there's it feels like there's limited viewpoints going on rather than like omnipresent camera. I, I, I see what you mean, but I almost feel like those viewpoints should have been more limited. Mm. Um, because I could never quite get a handle on whose point of view the story was being told from and if that point of view was really the most successful one. And ultimately, I feel like most of the movies from Tim and Judith's point of view, and because they kind of are on the fence between siding with Creval and the other captives, it makes sense to use them as the point of view because they get to see the most of the story, yeah. right? But I don't know if it's the most effective in actually creating an atmosphere of horror because it's sort of like seeing, I don't know, Saw from the point of view of, like, Jigsaw's assistant, Bob, <laughs> you know? Like, rather than being with the people in the traps, you know, and it's like, oh, like, saw your butt cheeks off into the portcullis, you know? Like, um, <laughs> like instead of that... You're over here with Bob being like, um, should it be, how, what's the weight that I need to put for the pork cost, boss? It should be nine millimeters. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, like it, the, taking his notes as he Yeah, the, the tension you. isn't quite there enough, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that, like, the lighting in the film 
works. Yeah, I liked the lighting. And it really helps create that feeling of ambiance. <laughs> Let me be clear, horror ambiance. Right. I had a moment of like, <laughs> if I just say because of the firelight, it could be mistaken for romantic ambiance. Sure. The um, the scene where um, he like s- blows the light out and then like oh. knocks over Tim, like that's a good scene. The oh. scene where he's like, where he's like, well, I guess I'll just need to use your body or whatever, and then whoo, and then like knocks. That was a good scene. Oh yeah, because it just like the camera's just pitch black. That yeah, I have something that's a little meta for you, Ben. Okay. So the flashback that we get mm-hmm. with Karloff, sorry, Kraval. Um, first getting frozen with these other guys. That's explicitly said that that happened in 1930. Mm-hmm. And now it's 1940. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the differences in terms of horror conventions between those two time frames. Okay, sure. And how the film, maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Um, Probably. I, <laughs> um... But I wonder if it's, like, like just subtly doing something with that. So, like, in 1930, we don't have a lot of horror. It's very, like, distant. I think by this time we still have kind of, like, mad scientist stuff going on. The Bat Whispers was 1930. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms when of mad scientist... When was the magician? Magician would have been before that, and so would the monster with um, Lon Chaney Sr. Yeah. Um, so we, we already kind of have this bit of an archetype. The setup with 1930 is we have this quote-unquote mad scientist. The law coming to stop him, and, like, everyone, like, the entire cast of people here to stop him comes into the laboratory to have it explained mm-hmm. to them, but not actually seeing any kind of experiment, just the result of that. And ultimately, the scientist, the villain, succumbing to its own quote-unquote, creation, his Mm. own experiment, getting frozen. Mm -hmm. So those kinds of tropes. Fast forward to 1940, where, especially with this film, we have a mad scientist, because they kind of absolve him of his crimes. Like, the end justifies the means. His crossing of the law is justified Mm -hmm. in a a weird way. And he succeeds at the end, passes... Like, he's sinned enough that he must die, but he passes on the lessons to the next person. And that really reminded me of 1939's Torture Ship. Okay, right. Where there was, like, this weird difficulty with, like, is this ethical or unethical? Yeah. And I have to say, if, like, is it export? No. Torture Ship was an exploitation film. No, I mean, it was close, but in (laughs) in budget, but no. Um, But if, like, a movie like that is doing that kind of narrative, I think that's a pretty good sign that it's a trope, not something new and inventive. I think you, you've hit on what's interesting about this movie, mm-hmm. for me. And it's not... I like your discussion of, like, 1930 horror versus 1940 horror. I don't think any of that's intentional at all. <laughs> it just got me thinking. Sure. But I think what is interesting about this movie is the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, typically in these kinds of films, the notes get destroyed, or the scientist dies. Um, but either way, the moral becomes there are some things man is not meant to know, and so the super science in the story gets lost. Uh, but in this movie, Creval actually finishes the work, um, and while he dies, the story's survivor is a doctor in the same field. So we get the strange epilogue where 
the madman who broke all ethical boundaries and killed for both vengeance and science becomes posthumously valorized in mm-hmm. this speech so that his work can be assimilated by the public. Yeah. Um, I don't think the movie means for that to have as disturbing a tone as it does. Like, yeah, because think... it's 1940. Um, would concentration camps be in full swing by this point? It, I mean, y- mm. sidebar. Sure. Yes and no. Okay. Because concentration camps date back to, like, the Boer War in, like, the 1890s, but are not what we think of in modern terms as, like, Auschwitz. Like, sure. what, what the, you know, what an, uh, what an American person thought a concentration camp was and what the Nazis made concentration camps into became very different things. Oh, okay. Um, so, yes and no. Also, like... The full final solution hadn't really kicked in by this point, but, like, yes, it was already happening, but even so, America wasn't really aware of it. Yeah. Like, America was not aware of what the Nazis were doing until, like, the soldiers arrived at those camps and started rescuing people at the end of the war. Um, But I think it's important to acknowledge if the ideas that led to justifying doing such experiments existed. For sure, yeah, absolutely. The connection is certainly there. You're certainly watching this going like, this guy's a Nazi. Because that's like the classic, you know, if you ever get like a weird, ill-thought-out thought experiment from a social studies teacher about concentration camps, it's usually something about how, you know, oh, well, what if the experiments led to increases in effective medicine or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. It's this kind of thought experiment. So I, I think it's a natural thought to to link the two. Um, the people making the movie would not be able to make that connection. But I think what is interesting is, as much as that ending is disturbing, it feels very realistic. Yeah. And in line with how popular history treats problematic but useful figures, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, if you have someone in history who, I don't know, you know, this guy wrote the Bill of Rights or whatever, but also he owned slaves and, you know, that that kind of thing, right? Where we, if someone's contributions to history are useful and we want to keep using them, we pretend like the person was a hero because there's this weird thing that as a culture we do where if someone's personal actions were terrible, we think that means we have to, like toss everything they did in the trash, right? We can't separate work from person. Yeah. So we have to create this lie if we want to keep using the work where it's like, oh, yeah, Dr. Craval, great dude, perfectly normal. Yeah. Um, And that makes the ending of this movie very interesting. And I think if we want to talk about what changed between 1930 and 1940, coming back to your point of, like, the way the tropes have changed with the mad scientist... The thing that I think stands out to me is that the basis of the mad scientist as villain trope in something like Frankenstein comes from the common person's fear of science and the unknown, mm-hmm. right? You, uh, to a common man in the 19th century, a scientist might as well be a wizard for how much you can understand what they're doing, <laughs> right? Like, like sure. if you're a chimney sweep in the 1890s, and a scientist is like, here's how I can make a Tesla coil. You'd be like, cool, blimey! 
That's oh called lightning. Uh, okay. A ninth cool. level spell. Like, anyways. <laughs> so, so the point I'm trying to make is that's where your fear comes from. Yeah. Right? You don't understand what the scientist is doing, so you're afraid of him. I think by 1940, science had con- started to contribute enough, like, visible positive changes in people's lives that you weren't 100% comfortable making stories that were like, well, science is garbage anymore. Mm-hmm. Because it was like, right, but didn't we just cure polio or whatever? Like, I think what you end up with is this I thing where you still don't trust the scientist, but you kind of trust the science. So you end up in this, like, on-the-fence situation where, like, Craval is clearly insane, but, like, if we can use his research, that's all for the best. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting things. Was there anything else you want to dig into about this movie? Just a quick note that Judith is an interesting character to me. Okay. Because, like, yeah, she doesn't have a huge amount of agency, but, like, I just found it very interesting how she is, like, freaking out and breaking down, thinking that um, she killed these men, when really they've just been drugged, um, and then after Creval's like, no, see, they're fine. Nurse. Nurse. I need you to take their temperature. Her professionalism kicks in, Mm -hmm. and she, like, does that. And then, like, in the process, helps kill one of them with the poison mixture, Mm -hmm. and she breaks down because of that. But I think, I don't know, it just seemed very interesting that we have a woman being able to play both the emotional role of this film, but also a very professional role. I think being a nurse is a big part of why she can do that, because nurses are, like, in terms of how they're culturally viewed, especially in this time period, are kind of, like, right on that line between the professional woman and the traditional woman, because the nurse is serving sort of a very traditional woman in the home role of being the caregiver Mm -hmm. and you know the nurse is expected to provide emotional support to a patient when doctors you know in this time period were very like hands off Mm -hmm. and so there's that very feminine nurturing motherly whatever you want to call it side of nurses but also nurses are professional they go to work they have a job they punch in they punch out they get a paycheck they know things they have medical knowledge etc etc it's a very serious job yeah and it's one of the few jobs that would have been like a common and accepted job for women at the time so it allows you to have that back and forth of characterization yeah so i liked judith okay i i i mean i did i'm glad that you had the chance to say that because i was going to say that like earlier when you were talking about judith like i was interested in hearing more mm-hmm. on that point because i didn't really find anyone in this movie all that interesting except for Creval. Okay. Um, I thought everyone else was kind of just eh. Um, well, especially the people who are frozen. Like, they're, they are just kind of supposed to be, like, one-note characters, right? They get, like, what, ten minutes? Yeah, I think um, Mason and Judith maybe could have been better on the page. I wasn't really just a fan of their, like, acting performances all that much. I think could have been better. Yeah, Tim, I think, Tim felt very cardboard. Yeah, Joanne Sayers, who plays Judith, is all right. Like, she plays everything that she does well. My problem with her is that she, her performance doesn't feel integrated. Mm. Like, when she does the breakdowns, it's very well done. And when she does the, like, I'm Judith and I'm going to help, it's very well done. But 
she turns on a dime from like, Oh, Tim, what are we going to do? We're locked in the middle. To like, oh, of course, Dr. Cravel, I'll make tea for everyone. Do, 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 do. Like, there, you don't get yeah. enough of the sense of like... A whole character. She's exactly. playing scenes. Exactly. That's precisely it. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I wanted to address with this movie before we moved on to ranking, this is a movie about cryogenically freezing people. And I just wanted to bring that up because when we did The Man Who Changed His Mind, one of the things I talked about was how weird it was to be watching a movie where like a really standard sci-fi trope was being done for like the first time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're seeing here too. Like cryogenically freezing people is such a sci-fi trope that when it pops up in movies today, no one explains it, right? Like Captain America gets frozen in the ice for 70 years and they wake him up and no one even bothers to like bat an eyelash at yeah. that, right? People in sci-fi movies on spaceships like wake up out of tubes and then go to work and we all just know that they were in like cryo sleep or whatever, right? No one needs to say anything. Yeah. Um, so seeing a movie like this where like basically the entire movie's plot is here's what cryogenic freezing is is really interesting. Yeah. Like, just... just And this... they take the time to explain it. Right. Like, that's why we have that whole first scene. Yeah, it's it's all there to be like, you know, here's the the origin story of cryogenic freezing, is what this movie is. Like, <laughs> the origin the, story. Like, the rest of this movie... Like, the universe that follows after this movie is the universe where cryogenic freezing is real. <laughs> that That is true. Uh, so this universe has Dr. Freeze? Yeah, I would assume that, like, Dr. Freeze... Like, when he went to, like, Gotham University and, like, got his doctorate that, like, his, like, um, supervisor for, like, his thesis was Dr. Mason, I would assume. So, where would you rank this? All right, Sarah, well, um, my range for The Man With Nine Lives is number 43 to number 51. Oh, no. Are you higher? I am so higher. Oh, no. Oh, no. What are we going to do? Uh, how much higher are you? My range was between 20 and 22. Oh, wow. So you wanted to put it right with the other The Man Who Blah 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 movies. Yes, I did. Okay. Interesting. So the reason why I was looking where I was looking was because, as I sort of said at the start of our discussion, this movie wasn't bad, but didn't feel special to me. It was one standard length of movie. Um, so that's why I looked immediately at The Mummy, right in the, uh, <laughs> in the philosophical middle of our list, if not um, actually the middle of the list anymore. I think the exact midpoint has moved up quite a bit uh, to The Dark Eyes of London. But I always think of The Mummy as the philosophical middle of the list. Sure. So I was looking there, and I thought, The Mummy's probably a better horror movie than this. So I was looking around there, and then I thought, like, yeah, and Supernatural does some, like, really fun, neat, cool things with, like, the Lady Strangler, you know, and then looking down, I was like, well, maybe The Magician is better than this, The Bat's a lot of fun, Sealed room, like those people suffocate or whatever. This yeah, but is... Spanish Dracula's right there. You're just skipping that. This is definitely better than Thomas Edison Frankenstein. So that was kind of where I was looking. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. Well, but me... if we look all the way up to your range, yeah. putting it with like the other The Man Who Blah 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 movies. Yeah. 
Okay, so let me explain this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the man who changed his mind was great. Yes. Mainly because we got to see a dude, like, not being sure of his own past and, like, making shit up on the fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it was like, a lot of fun. Yeah, it was fun and spooky and had that, like, lady doctor. It yeah. was cool. The man they could not hang uh, was a bit more fantastical, as you kind of mentioned earlier. Like Had death traps. Death traps. It was, it was still, like, a revenge thing. There, there was just a lot going on in that, um, in that film. Then the ghoul, which is another Boris Karloff flick, mm-hmm. and uh, dude who's obsessed with the Egyptians locks himself after he dies, goes into a tomb, and people try to like steal his jewels or whatever. Right. Like, I feel like this film is definitely better than the ghoul. But is it better than Freaks? Is it better than the Black Room? Like is um, it is it better yeah. than Doctor X? This is this is why ranking is like the hardest part of the show. So like part of the reason why Freaks is where it is is because it's like half behind the scenes circus, mm-hmm. and the other half is the actual horror film. Right. Um, the Black Room. That's a really good point. Um, this could go above or below the Black Room. This, like, I, I just, I was looking at the other, the man who blah, blah, blah Right. And I was like, you know what, I feel like this was doing some new interesting things in the sense that the mad doctor isn't truly mad by the end. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, I think he was always truly mad. They're no, just... No, I mean, like, in terms of, like, public opinion, Yes, you they're, know? they're giving they're him a like, hagiography. Let's just keep using this science, though. Yes. Like, that just seems like a bit of a turning point in terms of the mad scientist flicks we've seen up to this point. I think that's true. That's kind of, like, a main reason why I'm like, I think this deserves to go higher than The Mummy, at the very least, because it's doing something kind of new. I think it held tension, not as good as it could have, but it was like, sure, it's not an A+, but it's like maybe a C+. Right, but like, I feel like C+, is lower than where, okay, my initial ceiling was the mummy like i wanted it to be going right below the mummy and your initial floor was the ghoul there are 20 films yeah in that range so if we look right in the middle okay that's dr x is this better or worse than that i think it's worse because dr x is a better horror movie with synthetic flesh and the spooky Art Deco mansion and the special effects and the shadows and the murders. This doesn't have a goofy reporter. Good point. It's horror all the way through. So you think this is better than Dr. X for sure? In the sense that it's more cohesive? Okay. Don't sound you don't sound too sure of yourself. Let me raise you up a couple levels then. Is this better or worse than The Raven? Where we've got like Bella Lugosi performing, like, bizarre surgery on Boris Karloff as part of his, like, plan to basically, like, kidnap this girl who he wants from her dad and trap everyone in his Edgar Allan Poe torture basement and, you know, on a dark, spooky night and Bateman and, you know, like, (laughs) is this more of a horror movie than The Raven is? Is this a better horror movie than The Raven is? Because it's a similar idea of, you know, everyone's trapped with this mad doctor in his house of horrors. Yeah. But I feel like The Raven 
actually made me feel terrified for the characters in a way that this movie didn't quite get to. We talked about how, I forget where the raven comes in in this trope, but the trope of, like, uh, Bella Lugosi going after a younger lady. Yeah, it was, it was the trope of um, the villain is an older person who is in a love triangle with, like, the younger couple and is basically going after them out of revenge. Yeah. I don't think that started with the raven. No, but it was one of, it, I think it was around the time we started to notice it was a trope. Yeah. The Man with Nine Lives doesn't have that. Sure, but it also doesn't have torture. <laughs> I don't know. I, I didn't fear for people in The Raven like I feared for them in this. Because, like, these people are turned into lab rats. Uh, yeah, I just feel like there was not enough done with that. They're, they're lab rats for, like, five minutes and then they're all dead. It's like, oops, I killed one. Oops, I shot one. Oops, I killed the other one. Well, I'm out of lab rats. Okay, so then how about this? We put it below the Raven and above 1913's Student of Prague. Okay, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm going pretty far down, but you're coming pretty far up, so... And you, you, you would be okay with saying, like, this isn't as good as White Zombie? Because White Zombie's a horror movie. Like, I think White you can't really deny that. Yeah, like... This is a horror movie, too. Okay. Right? We're in an area of the list where we can't just be like, this, this one's more of a horror movie. Like, it, it's more difficult to do something like that. Sure. Well, I'm okay with putting it here at number 30. Are you good with that spot? Yes. Okay. Then, entering the list at number 30 is The Man with Nine Lives from 1940, directed by Nick Grinda. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can also find links to the other episodes that we've referenced, as well as an appeals box where you can submit appeals or questions, concerns, suggestions, anything of the sort. If you feel like this film should have gone higher or lower or somewhere in between, feel free to send us a note. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can find us through your podcasting app of choice by subscribing to our RSS feed. Another way you can help out the show is by letting others know about us, whether that's on Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr or in real life. If you know someone who might be into a trivia-filled show about old horror movies, pass the word along. We are getting to September. I think this episode will actually probably air in September, which means it's basically Halloween already, which means it's prime time for Scream Scene recommendations to your friends. Um, speaking of trivia, uh, The Man with Nine Lives is the title of a Battlestar Galactica episode. Like from the original, old, yeah. yeah. Old, old BSG. Yeah, from the 70s. Another way you can help out the show is by going to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. We really appreciate all of our patrons and anyone who's able to help support the show uh, monetarily. The more you can help us, the better... The more we can help you. That's not really true. The more you can help us, the better we can make the show... We're hoping to one day be able to do bonus episodes on horror-adjacent films. And, of course, 
patrons at higher levels get exclusive rewards like bonus audio cut from past episodes. Patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast. Well, Sarah, how would you like to watch a movie from Columbia Pictures starring Boris Karloff as a mad scientist experimenting with the line between life and death directed by Nick Grinder? Um... I don't think I've seen anything like this Next before. Next week's episode, Before I Hang. Um, so it's just like a cooking show about his last meal. Yeah, I, I'm sure that's what it is. Okay. Yeah. He didn't laugh at my joke. I acknowledge that your joke existed. Sure. We will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.